This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey. Hello. Hey. Wanna wanna, <laughs> wanna know about something something pretty cool? Yeah. Uh we're doing extra episodes. <laughs> we're doing extra episodes, everyone. <laughs> Bonus episodes for your listening pleasure. VIP. Super VIP. Super cool all the time. Yes. All you have to do is head over to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash art history babes. Mm-hmm. You can donate one dollar. You yeah. can donate five dollars yeah can donate a hundred dollars whoa that'd be awesome <laughs> you can donate whatever your little heart desires and you will have access to monthly bonus episodes so if you just cannot get enough of the art history babes you should definitely check it out yeah we appreciate it we appreciate you and the episodes are great we've yeah. done one it was and great. we're gonna do more and it was anymore. good it was really good. It was really, yeah. it was really topical and really <laughs> <It was>. interesting. <laughs> Very relevant. Yeah. Everybody check it out. And uh, thanks. Thanks so much. From Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Natalie. I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. I told you guys it can be eerie out here. I feel like that was a good example <laughs> of how yeah. it can be eerie. That was a little bit freaky. We were just sitting in silence for a little while. It's like this thing that we do when we like start recording just to like even out the levels of sound. And there's these two clocks in this room <laughs> that are just ticking and it really shouldn't be a scary thing (laughs) but we were all just like yeah (laughs) yeah so that was interesting um we're at natalie's parents beautiful estate (laughs) (laughs) aka natalie's bougie ass cool house we lovingly call it the cole's resort (laughs) it's amazing out here it's beautiful i want to live here now honestly driving out here because it's one of those you head out to the birds, then you've got to like turn on to like a kind of gravelly road and then another turn and then the the street names get small. Yeah. So you have to like know where you're going. I got lost like twice. I had to turn around. I was like, uh, okay, I missed something. And then you pull up and there's this gate that yeah. you have to know the code for. I like told Natalie when I pulled up in my shitty car <laughs> that I felt like that scene in uh, Bridesmaids where she comes for the engagement party and she's like in her shitty car in the valet. Like, Anyone yeah. who knows this scene is laughing their ass off right now. And the I valet like comes that. up with like champagne and like is trying to park her car. That's how 
I felt. Sans it, the champagne. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't catch that. That was a missed opportunity. Yeah, I really Natalie. was. We don't Next time. get to take home puppies <laughs> in this scenario, but hey, unfortunately, um, hey, you don't know. <laughs> oh, we don't know. We don't know what Nat has. Life has not ended. Yeah, know it's coming. Oh my god, that would be. It has been such a long day. Like that would really would set you off. No, no. That if would, I saw a puppy right now, I would just start crying. Oh yeah, like, that would be lovely. But if it's been a long day and then you have to go home and take care of a puppy, <laughs> that's like almost like the the stress relief that the puppy initially brings would be counteracted by then having no, I was thinking a sleepless puppy. I was thinking more along the lines of like after all this is over, you open that door to that other room in your uh, pool no, house just and there's just like a bunch of puppies yeah. that run out and then I get to be like puppy And then you get to go home and sleep peacefully with Yes, puppies. Exactly, okay. exactly. Okay. That's kind of what I was thinking. What yeah. I was what I was fantasizing about. Yeah, yeah. No, no taken. I could use a puppy party. We should have a puppy party. I know. Last night I was at a softball game and there were just three. They weren't, I mean, they weren't genuine puppies, but they were all like (laughs) medium to smaller dogs and they were just so fucking cute. And at one point they were just all around me and like trying to kiss me. And I was like, I need this. Like, this is what I wanted. Puppy therapy is real. It It is real. Remember when we were, when we were at UC Davis, they would have puppy therapy they would bring mm-hmm. puppies to During the quad, quad and yeah they could go out to the quad and play with puppies to relieve stress it makes sense they're they're lovely creatures oh animals in general yeah. Just, yeah are just nice it's funny we're all in our kind of like postgraduate moving around limbo phase <laughs> limbo exactly so natalie's, natalie's <laughs> pool house context natalie's pool house at her parents place is at least three times the size of the place i just moved into i'm rocking 300 square feet baby it's weird though because like i prefer kind of smaller space i, I get that's that. the thing that freaks me out the most about this is like the fact that there's another room over there that's like empty yeah would give me that a attaches anxiety. to a wood shop so it's the wood shop <laughs> another room. you just hear a chainsaw in the middle of the night <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is definitely the setup for a horror movie. Yeah, and like this big glass window. It doesn't it doesn't lights. hurt so that you're like a cute young girl, like on your own. Like, oh yeah, this is totally like the beginning of every horror. Film yeah, ever. exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. Whatever, dude. Natalie would break I'm, I'm gonna, Nicole's nose. Since I'm up like in the middle of the night now because of my job, you. I'm gonna start just like prank calling you, like, like <laughs> creepy, <laughs> creepy, like that's like that's evil. I know, right? I didn't know you were evil. I have nothing yeah. else to do at two thirty in the morning <laughs> to torture me. <laughs> Dang. Oh. So yeah, okay. So um, Corey is actually secretly evil we were not aware yeah we're finding out with you guys this is all hey it's it's the witching season we're coming into fall oh i love getting spooky getting creepy with it i think we all just like flourish around halloween oh yeah yeah i think last year we killed it oh yeah we totally killed it well a lot of us are because you're uh September baby. Yeah. And then Ginny's October and I'm November. So yeah. a lot of us are skip a month and then, and then it's January. Yeah. A lot of us are, are fall babies, so it's like mm-hmm. in my blood, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Just I, I don't know, I come alive at this yeah, time. Dude, new beginnings. I love it. You know? 
It's a good time of year. Oh. It's a great time of year. Man, spring is more temperamental. I like how I feel like fall's a little calmer. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely calmer. I love the whole I mean, I love all the spooky shit and the weirdness, but I also love the like get all cozy and read yeah. books yeah. and but like I love squash. I know. I know. I know. Squash is great. <laughs> Holy hell. All the squashes. Yeah. The best thing about fall is that moment when the sun goes down and the air is just crisp. Oh. That crisp evening fall air makes me want to run naked into the woods oh, yeah. and like have a, a witch's sabbath yeah. well, especially after this hot ass summer oh it's, it's been so bad feel all the see that is one thing about like california does have fall like there are definitely fall moments but in the midwest that crisp feeling is a lot more prolonged i bet and a lot more intense i bet and i do kind of miss that a lot I feel like here it happens, but it's brief. It's right. like, oh, oh, here it is. I have to catch it. And then before yeah. you know it, everything's dead and yeah. it's perpetual it, night. Exactly. <laughs> but in the Midwest, you have a span of like mm-hmm. a good few weeks to a month where it's like that. Yeah. Like a we lot gotta of get, the time. We got to get out to the Midwest. We do. We want to go to Minnesota. Minnesota. Let's do, we'll do a live podcast from Minneapolis. Paisley Park. It'll be so good. There's also just a lot of great art for you guys to see. I feel like when you say, like, you want to go to Minneapolis, I'm like, can I meet Atmosphere? I feel like that's how, like, the rest of the country thinks of California. (laughs) They're like, oh, I meet so many actors and actresses. I'm like, go to Minneapolis, let's meet Atmosphere. Like, Like the one, well. Slug, Ant, where you at? (laughs) Definitely not the one from Minneapolis, the one from Minneapolis. Was fucking Prince. Well, yeah, obviously. See, this is rest where, in peace. This is I where, know, but I like this is where our listeners can really feel the age difference between Corey and I and Natalie. No, atmosphere has been around for a minute. Yeah. Well, then I'm just really out of touch. They're like in their forties. <laughs> because I was like, atmosphere. I don't think you listen to that kind of rap. Mm, no. Yeah, like I old, listen to old like white guy rap. I, I listen don't. to <laughs> old DMX and. Work out with pit bulls all around me. Well, I also listen to that. Like, (laughs) I think, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with atmosphere because you can't really be from the Midwest and not be familiar with atmosphere. But, but yeah, they've been around for a long Mm -hmm. time. All right. Um, I stand correct. (laughs) Definitely not an age thing at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I am mature. (laughs) You are quite mature. Way more mature. I don't know. A lot of times I feel like we're talking about musicians that Nat knows nothing about that are like new. Yeah, and... I actually feel like that happens more often. I, I agree. Like, and I'm like, have you heard of, like, wow, I love Rich Chiga. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have to show me who he is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I feel like that's that's more the norm with us. Yeah. I feel like you and I, we're, we're still yeah. we're still in with the youngins. Yeah, uh, that's you we're still cool. <laughs> we're still relevant. I swear to God, we're still cool. <laughs> Honestly, oh I owe a lot of my my current swag to Jesus and Miro. Like they just Same. they just keep me in the know all yeah. the time. My boys Jesus and Miro. If you're not familiar, Jesus and Miro on Viceland or Bodega Boys podcast. You need so to good. get on it. So funny. They are amazing in everything they do. We love you Bodega Boys. Love you so much. Have us on your show. Oh my god, that'd be so Could cool. you imagine? <laughs> I would lose my mind. I know. What would your rainbow say? Oh man, just problematic. So we're out here and um we came out to 
do a really special episode tonight. An episode we've been meaning to do for a long time. It's a, it's an exciting one. I think a lot of people will get a lot out of it. It mm-hmm. is a movement that is one of my favorites. I know it's one of Nat's favorites. I'm just going to go out on a, lo- a limb and assume Jen digs it. I do. It's a very interesting period of time yeah. in uh, modern art history. Yeah. So we're talking about abstract expressionism or ab x ab x for the cool kids yeah um it sounds it, it sounds cool like that it sounds like <laughs> real cool it's like it sounds like a dj name like, yeah dj ab x <laughs> that's amazing it kind of reminds me of uh dj roomba in a way oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put it like put a painting on wheels and just send it around. DJ Abex. Oh, I love it. Ooh, that has a good ring to it. It does. Dang. All so, right. Well, some, some, someone out there needs to capitalize yeah, someone, on that. Like, <laughs> it's done. Someone already was like, mine. Yeah. <laughs> Abstract expressionism. Abstract let's, expressionism. Let's get into it. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with a little historical context for y'all. Um, So abstract expressionism, situating it in history, it is a art movement that occurred in the United States post-World War II, 1940s to 1960s approximately. It was also termed the New York School because a lot of it happened Mm -hmm. in New York. Not all of it, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it happened in New York. Right. It was influenced by European modernism, surrealism, and... I'm quoting here, non-Western art traditions. I got this out of an um, art history book I have. Okay. And I was like, that's really vague. I don't know what that means. It's, but <laughs> Yeah, it's vague. I, I think we can maybe, we'll, we'll maybe try to get into that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. See what, unpack what that might mean. Non-Western art traditions. So, you know, everything else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> While there is a range of ABX work, there are several well-known artists that, like sculptors, that work off of abex. most of abstract expressionism is geared around painting, or most of the big works anyways. It's, it's a very paint-heavy movement. Visually, these works have a tendency to be large, intense, expressive, obviously, <laughs> dynamic. Um, they use bold color, lack a clear focal point often, and use non-objective imagery, hence the abstract. The process of abstract expressionism, so the process of creating the work, is central to the work. Uh, Nat will get into that a little bit more when she talks about action painting. A A lot of the work that was created under this umbrella of abstract expressionism is it was one of the, the first movements that was really focused on the process and what the process process meant for the work. So we're we're starting to talk about like heavy conceptual ideas, at least in terms of art making. Many abstract expressionists didn't like the term abstract expressionism, which is not a surprise. Almost every single group is Everyone like, else. I don't like that. Labeled. Yeah, it's just, exactly. It's a common theme. I get it. The surrealists did not want to be called surrealists. The impressionists didn't want to be called impressionists. Um, Fluxus, they didn't want to be called Fluxus. Baroque is a straight up insult. Baroque's an insult. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fauvism started as an yeah. insult. Wild animal. Yeah, wild beast. Oh yeah, wild beast. Yeah, yeah like yeah. it's just uh, we talked about um, how Agnes Martin hated minimalism. D- Donald Judd hated minimalism because Agnes Martin 
wasn't really a minimalist. I know, but that's why she didn't well, that's want why to she identify. Hated yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't hate the term minimalism. She didn't well, she didn't want to identify with any given movement. But the thing is with Agnes Martin, I think you can't argue that she wasn't a minimalist. Yeah, it's, totally. I Which think, we have. Go listen to that episode. Yeah, go over it's, to uh, our friends Art the Art Bros on uh YouTube. We did an episode about Agnes Martin with them. So, yeah, she didn't like the term minimalism. Donald Judd didn't like the term minimalism, and he was, like, the king of minimalism. So, basically, no artists like the group that they're placed in. Yeah. You know what it is? Artists have led up to modern-day hipsters. Like, this is what happened. Oh, yeah. All the artists of history have led up to just an entire generation of pseudo-artists who just don't want to be labeled. Exactly, because hipsters (laughs) all... And I'm totally saying this as someone who has led a fairly hipster-identified lifestyle. <laughs> like, hipsters all want to be artists. They all want to yeah. be interesting. They all want to be individual, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing about labels. I won't, We won't spend too much more time on this. But, like, the reason I think that a lot of these artists hate the, the label that kind of covers them, not only are they losing their individual vision or whatever – um, but also, it's never, like, one of the artists that comes up with the name. It's always someone else oh, who, yeah, like, I'm sees so, what they're yeah. doing and is like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm going to call it this. And Which, to be fair, is kind of, like, our job. Oh, <laughs> as art historians, we're those people, and yeah. we're, we're doing our best to be considerate, but that's kind of what we sign I up know. for. I know. It's true. Who, like, has to, to co- put words yeah. to art. Comes up with, like, a new name, and yeah. all the artists are like, I hate it. But, like, I know I've mentioned this before, like... It's human nature, it's human tendency, like that's really what knowledge is. Knowledge is putting things into boxes and is categorizing mm-hmm. things. So it's really hard to make sense of anything if you're not willing to label it. I Yeah, I'm very comfortable with the whole loop of artists not wanting to be labeled <laughs> and art historians labeling them, and it just goes on like that forever, and it's they a very, get mad, and I get why they're mad. It's a very symbiotic yeah, relationship. But, but they'd also be pissed if no one was talking about them, yeah, so right. <laughs> you um, can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, so abstract expressionists uh, often claimed their subjects were not, quote, abstract, but rather primal images deeply rooted in society's collective unconscious. Okay. Fucking dope. I can get behind that. Yes. So just to name a few, we're going to talk about um, these more in depth, but Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Jackson Pollock, Willem de Kooning, Helen Frankenthaler, some of your big abstract expressionists. Mm -hmm. The goal of abstract expressionism to put it in a box, to express universal truths about the human condition, Uh, which is really interesting, I think, because this is just my personal thoughts, but so the term abstract expressionism, obviously expression, we're talking about emotional expression, we're talking about emotions, and then the abstract expressionists come back and say, hey, that's not what we're doing, we're expressing these primal instincts, these, these things that are truths about human nature but at the end of the day aren't emotions primal truths about human nature yeah right right what's more primal than your emotions i know right so i'm I'm like i think they they go hand in hand Mm -hmm. yeah abstract expressionism was the first american visual art movement to gain international acclaim this is an idea that jen is going to go into a lot of detail about later and it really has a fascinating political history so stay tuned for that for sure yeah it's really interesting and unexpected but 
abstract expressionism was spearheaded by American artists, artists working in America. And it was the first visual art movement where like America was kind of leading in the visual arts. It, it hadn't happened before this. So a lot of times, you know, like Jackson Pollock is considered the quintessential American artist, you know, and abstract mm -hmm. expressionism is the quintessential American art movement for this reason. And as I said before, it had a lot of political implication as well. I have this quote by Barnett Newman in relation to the creation of abstract expressionism. We felt the moral crisis of a world in shambles, a world destroyed by a great depression and a fierce world war. And it was impossible at that time to paint the kind of painting that we were doing. Flowers, reclining nudes, and people playing the cello. I think that is a very succinct way yeah. to look at what they were doing. Um, yeah. Before I, even getting into the philosophy and the psychology in a very just down to the root of it yeah. kind of way, that's what they were doing. It's putting a concrete rationale behind something that seemed, I mean, and not to just like play off the name, but is so abstract just in theory and all of this stuff and not a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about abstractions and abstract thoughts and emotion and all of these things that you can't easily identify, but you can't deny what war does to a world. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's a great way to put yeah, it. Like, that should be on a t-shirt. <laughs> you can't deny what war does to a world. We should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's a world war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dang. Which, yeah. Dang. <laughs> We're getting then deep. on the back of the shirt, it just says, dang. Yeah. <laughs> period at the end. I want that shirt. <laughs> we need to, we need to oh, make man. that happen. We have so many shirt ideas. I know. Oh, we need to make it happen. So, abstract expressionists getting into the ideology. Politically, a fair amount of them were pretty Marxist, which is interesting because abstract expressionism is the quintessential American art form, and we're also supposed to hate like Marxism and communism, so there's kind of a problematic. Yeah, it's a it's, it's an interesting thing. Think you know, just think about it. Just Corey's think. bringing out her extra Midwest that one. <laughs> just think about it for a second. <laughs> that was so cute. Good. That was great. Now that, I'll bring you out a tater tot hot dish, and we can just <laughs> think, think about it. Uh. Can I have that? <laughs> We're seeing so many sides of Corey tonight. This I don't even know like what a tater tot hot dish is, but I I know it's good and I and want it. <laughs> we can make that happen when we go to the Midwest. We will make that happen for sure. We'll get a tater tot hot dish. We'll go look at some art. We'll go purify ourselves in the waters of like Minnetonka. <laughs> yeah. It'll be great. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it'll be absolutely lovely. Anyways, abstract expressionism. So, the influences of abstract ex expressionism. There was an influence of surrealism, even though... So, some abstract expressionism, you can clearly see an influence of surrealism. It's yeah. very much there. There's, there's works by Pollock and works by Rothko that you totally see this influence of surrealism. However, they're not really the works that they're known for. Yeah. Um, as their work developed, as abstract expressionism developed, you started to lose visually that surrealist influence, but the ideas were still there. Mm -hmm. So surrealism was influenced by, or largely influenced by the ideas of Sigmund Freud, Psychological, psychoanalytic theory. You may of have heard of him. Yeah, maybe. Sigmund Freud. 
Abstract expressionism was largely influenced by the ideas of Carl Jung, which was a follower yeah. of Sigmund Freud. Almost like a response in a way. Yeah, it's it basically Carl Jung started as a, a follower of Freud's and then he kind of developed his own yeah. footing and yeah. then moved away from from Freud. Interestingly, that kind of mirrors a lot of, I feel like, art relationships yes. where you, like, mentor an artist and you learn their style and then you get to a point where you kind of, you can't always call it surpassing them, but you start to just figure out your own way once you learn their stuff. Yeah, and that's well, why I think be. this is just a very interesting and important comparison because I think Ab X developed from surrealism in a very clear way similar to how Carl Jung developed from Freudian yeah. ideas, yeah. you know? Um, I read this article, it was a master's thesis actually, or maybe it was a PhD thesis, but Unveiling the Unconscious, the Influence of Jungian Psychology on Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko Ooh. by Amy Elizabeth Sedivi. Uh, we'll obviously have that up on our sources, mm-hmm. but she kind of gets into this idea specifically with regards to Pollock and Rothko. So Jungian psychology, it's pretty weird A lot of it has kind of been, debunk's not the right word. It's been, it doesn't hold a ton of weight in the scientific community. That being said, I love Jungian psychology. I think it's fascinating. Me too. I think the concept of the collective unconscious is badass. I think there are a lot of things he did that are really interesting. Yeah. If you're one of the people like me who loves like your personality tests and shit, um, Jungian psychology led to the Myers-Briggs personality indicator. Mm-hmm. So if you know your, your MBTI, your Myers-Briggs type, that leads right back to Carl Jung. Yeah, um, learn a bit about your shadow side. Yeah. Embrace your shadow side. Shadow sides. I love that term oh, so much. Me too. Shadow side is so good. Learn about it. Learn about it. Think about it. Just Be about it. Sit with it. <laughs> <laughs> so Carl Jung's ideas grew from Freud's, but Jung de-emphasized the role of sex in everything. Thank God. I like, know. So if you're familiar with psychology or the history of psychology or Freud, everything came down to sex. I just see dude. penises. I just see penises. Yeah, so. all the time. And it all had to do with weird sexual hang-ups you had, like, like with your mom and shit. Like, yeah. yeah. Everything meant you were going to get castrated. Yeah. Yes. It's like, God damn, dude. It really said a lot about Freud mm-hmm. and... I don't know. Everyone just kind of jumped on it, though, because it was so spicy. It was spicy, and it led to some interesting shit. Like, obviously, Freud had a huge influence on Dali, who I love his work, you know? Great masturbator. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Freud had a great influence on a whole lot of stuff. So, I mean, you you can't deny his influence. However, yeah, if Jung's ideas have been discredited, Freud's have been, like, I don't want to say he's a joke, but yeah. like you make jokes about Freudian slips and stuff, and it's hard. You're hardly ever like being genuine. It's just yeah, like, most any work that's done, any research that's done in relation to Freud is typically in a sense that you're trying to kind of pick it apart and be like, actually, this is how it is. <laughs> actually, actually, yeah, you're trying to mansplain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah. So Freud was the king of mansplainers. Oh yeah, and um, and now everyone's just trying to mansplain Freud. Freud, yeah. There wow, we go. we've come full circle. We have. <laughs> um, 
I think that's also why I like Young so much is because he like he stood up to Freud in like Freud's heyday, like when Freud yeah. was a legit thing, and Young was like, nah, yeah, like, actually, well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, oh. <laughs> well, what's that joke? Oh, where does a mansplainer get his water? Where? Uh, well, actually. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I should have known that one. I'm sure I've heard that before. Uh, oh, right? I liked it. Um, to do one of the main distinctions between Jung and Freud, Jung referred to the libido, which Freud talked about a lot. Jung referred to the libido as a generalized life energy, not just concerned with sexual pleasures, which I agree with 100% because I feel like the place that my general life energy and, like, my sexual energy come from are a very similar place. They just, like, operate... Yeah, dude. You know, yeah. differently. But it's the same kind of thing, you totally. know? It's a It's a, a deep personal Wait, life energy, you know? I listened you know? to a podcast a while ago. I'll find it and I'll get it to you guys. But it was um, my dear sex nerd Sandra mm-hmm. had someone on. And they were talking about, like, honing in your energy from your genitals and, like, using female arousal to, like, be productive Hell in yeah. the way. And this woman, and she was, like, a full-blown scientist. Like, she knew what she was talking about. I don't. I'm totally butchering this concept. But the way that she was talking it, about it was, like, using your female hormones and empowering yourself to, like, do stuff from your genitals, essentially. I it's love it. very interesting. Lead. Lead yeah. with the vagina. Yes. I love it. I am about that. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. It's a very... There's a lot of energy that... Your best vagina forward. Yeah, I love it. Damn. I mean, it brings life into the world, literally. Like This is creative life. Yeah. I don't want to go on a tangent. I just want to share with you guys, very recently, (laughs) I got a (laughs) ultrasound on my lady parts because I was kind of worried. There was was some stuff (laughs) going on. And anyway... um, Learning what it all, like, looks like and having all of your measurements. I know the size of my uterus Oh, that's cool. And I know that I have one ovary that's quite substantially larger than the other. Interesting. It's like my main egg factory. (laughs) That's super interesting. I'm just saying, if you ever get one, it really makes you feel, like, reacquainted with what you got down there. And so... That sounds interesting. Now I want to lead forward with my female reproductive system and conquer the world. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I love it. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Anyway, okay, back to Abex. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, Young believed that like the libido was actually this generalized life energy where, yeah, a lot of creativity came from Mm -hmm, essentially. mm -hmm. Um, And as I said, he introduced the concept of the collective unconscious, which is the idea that um, there is an ancestral memory in which the cumulative experiences of generations past are embedded deep in the psyche. That is so real. I love that shit. Me I think too. it is so cool. And that like, just like is further proof and evidence for there actually being things like transgenerational trauma. Yeah. Which 
Natalie talks about extensively in her thesis and um, is, I think, totally relevant and real. Oh, definitely. I think that our DNA imprints way more than we give it credit. I mean, I think we're starting to figure it out, which is exciting. We that are, because there's, I always forget... Okay, I always forget the term, and I want to say eugenics, and it's not eugenics, because eugenics are terrible. Yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> Eugenics, very bad. That's bad. I, um, but it's another gen, like genetics word that starts with an E. It's an Epigenetics. Epigenetics, that is what Woo! it is. Epigenetics, real hot right now, you guys. Woo! Real hot. Look and up epigenetics. Yeah, look it up, but essentially the idea is that we are learning that yes, we do have genetic predispositions for things. DNA is real. However, the way that DNA is expressed is undeniably affected by your environment, yeah. by your actions. So basically, the the hypothesis, what people are proving and trying to prove is that how you live your life, the environment you put yourself in, essentially that you can change your gen- genetic makeup because yeah. you can change the way your DNA expresses yeah. itself. And I think that's like so important, especially in relation to this idea of like the collective unconscious because it's saying that things like social constructs, things like your environment, things like history and trauma affect your genetics. Yeah, and- like. In a physical, real way. How fitting, then, that these ideas, in tandem with the abstract expressionist movement, um, came out of World War II. Exactly. World War II, I mean, generally, maybe people know this, but I don't think we give it enough credit for how much World War II changed humanity. Mm -hmm. Like, it's easy to pinpoint that moment (laughs) where we went... Dang, <laughs> we can blow ourselves up yeah. easily. And that threat of nuclear annihilation, I think, really informed this idea oh. of the collective unconscious of this this sort of um, just being terrified yeah. of, of, like, our potential Definitely. on this planet. Yeah, and what, I mean, talking about Jung and psychology and stuff, I, I'm always, like, really fascinated by... The fact that art history and psychology or, like, yeah, psychology, they started right around the same time. Like, they almost grew in tandem with one another as far as, like, evolving into disciplines, which is fascinating. (laughs) And so, like, they're they're pretty young disciplines, and then on top of that, like, World War II just fucked shit up for everyone. And I don't, I know a lot of people who aren't in art history probably don't think about it as something that's, like, a super self-reflective Discipline? Discipline, thank you. I just said that word two seconds ago. <laughs> Guys, I'm, I'm at a loss for words today. But yeah, people don't see it as a self-reflective discipline, I'm, I'm just assuming for most. Mm. But it really kind of is if you look at a lot of the art historians around that time and who are also very theory-heavy. And you can find direct correlations between art historians and what they were studying and what happened in World War II. Like, I took a historiography class where we tracked these uh, Viennese, Austrian uh, art historians who didn't, like, make World War II happen, but the ideas that they were studying that they didn't realize were causing these shifts pushed people towards thinking of things like 
Nazism. It fed Whoa. directly into yeah. it. Without these people truly being Nazis, they were Crazy. just, they were building on these ideas that they thought were kind of like expansive and exclu- inclusive. Mm-hmm. And they ended up doing the exact opposite in feeding Nazi ideals. And it's just wild. Like, it all is so intertwined. We could do a full episode on oh, that. It's super man. interesting. This is wild. Yeah. This is all wild. Yeah. yeah. Those turn of the century art historians from Vienna, man, they. They fuck shit up. They fuck shit up. (laughs) And it's crazy. Like, it's weird to see the ones that get labeled as, like, Nazis or Nazi sympathizers or proto-Nazis and then the ones who get off scotch-free and it's just all so weird. Like, and then the ones who, like, get labeled that way, you're like, oh, do they deserve it? Like, did they have that intention? Like, it's just all so interesting. That is really interesting. We should talk about that more at a later juncture. Yeah, when we will. Tangent over. But yes, back to Jung and the abstract expressionists. So we're talking about the collective unconscious. In addition to his ideas about like the generalized life energy, Jung also attributed creative inspiration to collective unconscious. So essentially, he felt basically if if you had a moment of creative genius, it's because you were in touch with your collective unconscious. So the creativity is coming from your ancestral past. It's coming through. I really like that idea. I do too, a lot. So that's pretty cool and has obvious implications. In terms of how it affected both Pollock and Roscoe, who were, you know, two of the biggest names in abstract Mm -hmm. expressionism. Interestingly, Pollock underwent Jungian therapy for a long time. Oh. Yeah. Which is, is interesting because... Jackson Pollock was kind of your stereotypical, like, man's man artist. Yeah. But he was going to therapy, like, all the time. And he underwent Jungian therapy for many years during his art-making process, Mm -hmm. during his art-making years. Wow. There is a direct correlation between his work and Jungian thinking because he was experiencing it in therapy. So whether he did it intentionally or unintentionally, he used like subconscious level it's it's there it's either subconscious or i mean there's no way to know whether he did it consciously or not but he has a lot of work that you can find jungian symbols you you see him work with mythology often that is part of jungian psychology so there is a lot of overlap there which we could do an entire episode just on that like that's a very fascinating thing so a lot of his use of symbols in his in his works where he did actually use symbols so we're talking like pre-drip paintings he he would use symbols and they've been decoded by historians and psychologists he often used moon imagery. He used like crescent moons and Jungian psychologists have suggested that this represented his very complicated relationship with women what? and the moon because the moon is an archetypal ah. um, uh, image or feminine symbol, image. symbol for women. Right. Yeah. So you could read Pollock's use of the moon as him working through those ideas either unconsciously or consciously just something to chew on but yeah so there is in his work and in Rothko's work and other abstract expressionist work um a large influence of myth and archetype which is central to Jungian psychology and and this ties into the idea of like the Myers-Briggs personality indicator that is based entirely off the concept of archetypes Mm -hmm. so this idea of primal human states could also be defined as archetypes primal human states as archetype um so they would they would play with archetypal imagery in their work abstract expressionism 
kind of going back to what we were saying about uh, World War II, what Jen was saying about World War II, it was often seen as an attempt to understand the brutality of man- mankind. We have this huge influence of Jungian psychology, but philosophically, um, there was also a influence of Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre were huge influences in abstract expressionism because abstract expressionism was attempting to understand the brutality of mankind, which led to obviously a lot of existentialist thinking. So thinking about existence, why do we exist? Why are we here? And um, Sartre believed that an individual's actions might give life meaning, which gives a great deal of meaning to art in itself. So in a post war society post-World War II, there's just everyone scrambling around trying to find meaning, whether they want to admit it or not. That's kind of what was going on. And artists were just a little more upfront about it. And they were working through these interesting psychological ideas, but philosophically, they're also trying to just grapple with existence and what it all meant. So producing art that had that was expressive of primal human qualities was kind of a way to give life meaning. And that was kind of a big essence of abstract expressionism. And if you, if you think about it, I mean, so much of World War II was like this culmination of people trying so hard to nail civilization and like pinpoint what is civilized and the epitome of like humanism and what human beings can do and like putting so much power in this. And then what happened like in relation to trying to get there, I could see why an idea of going back to something primal is so appealing because you can see what too much human control does. So yeah. it's all, it's like a counteracting what was happening right before in a way, if that makes sense. Definitely. Like you don't trust human uh, decision-making so much as you're like, genocide Coming- doesn't happen by accident it's not yeah. a primal thing it's well that was the thing about world war Two. is it before the world wars we were in this time period where everyone really believed that civilization was a thing and yeah. that civilized and it was the, people was a yeah. thing and that and that it was the pinnacle of it, all meaning and all purpose exactly and, and then the world wars happened and most specifically world war Two. And after that, everyone was just like, what were we fucking talking about? Yeah, like, where were we going? Yeah. <laughs> like, this path that we thought was leading us somewhere great led us yeah. somewhere so wrong. So abstract expressionism, in that sense, is trying to grapple with all that. And as you can imagine, that makes it really fucking heavy. It's a, it's a heavy, heavy art form. And on that note, maybe we should take a quick break. Yeah. Good idea. Hey Nat, did you know that the FDA doesn't require tampon companies to disclose a list of the ingredients in their tampons? That's pretty horrifying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so major brands use synthetic ingredients in harsh chemical cleansing agents, whereas Lola is 100% cotton and BPA-free. And for those of you who are a little more environmentally conscious and don't even want to use the applicator, they make applicator lists, they make various sizes and panty liners for those who want them. 
And yeah, you can customize your subscription so you can get exactly what you need, you know, in the right sizes. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it gets delivered directly to your door so you don't have to worry about like... Lazy girl's dream. Exactly. <laughs> don't have to worry about running off to the store because they will be there every month at your door. Also, $5 off your first box. Come on guys, can't beat that. Pretty exciting. Head on over to trymylola.com slash babes, that's B-A-B-E-S, and start your subscription today. Go guys, do it. All right, so getting into some more of the nuances of abstract expressionist style, I wanna start by kind of reiterating what Corey said earlier the name abstract expressionism isn't very descriptive of a lot of the work that we look at within abstract expressionism. I mean, not to blanket statement it, but not all of it is entirely abstract and not all of it is completely expressionistic. So it's like, it's a blanket term for a lot of styles or a couple styles that I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> God, this been a rough day. Man. There are subtypes. There are to subtypes, yeah. abstract expressionism. Yeah. Um. And so the three that we're going to focus on are figurative. So which is kind of it seems almost like oxymoronic figurative abstract expressionism, but it exists. Yeah, it exists, yeah. and it it often goes by figurative expressionism. So kind of just drop the ex- abstract in there. I think it's it's a necessary subtype when placed against the other types because yes. the other types are decidedly non-figurative yeah. so this kind of gives a name to that last chunk of work totally. that doesn't fit into the other two types exactly and then we're also going to be looking at color field and at action can't believe i almost saw that one so action painting color field and figurative expressionism so figurative is somewhere in the middle between figural works and abstract works. They're expressive by nature, so they're more emotion-filled and trying to express something a little bit abstracted, but still, like, figuratively understood. That's a weird way to say that. Man, I'm just off today. But it's... (laughs) It's, I mean, it is kind of a complicated idea. I I think, like, the best way... To explain it is just in examples. terms of examples. Yeah. Like what I was saying before. So Rothko is your your color your, your color field painter. However, when you get into looking at Rothko's, he did a lot of works that weren't color field paintings that mm-hmm. that dealt with images of he dealt with mythology a lot, but it was in a very abstract expressionist style. But there yeah. were still some figural shapes that you could pull something figurative out of. In a Rothko? Yeah. 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 And the same with Jackson Pollock. He, before the drip paintings, he did, it was abstract expressionism still, but he was playing with actual figurative forms. Yeah. A lot. Truly, I think Pollock is one of those who sort of went around and did like a few different things Mm -hmm. within the span of his career. Yeah. A lot of these guys that we're going to talk about dipped into all of these different kind of sub styles, but then 
got famous for one. It's yeah, kind of just exactly. what happened. And they get, they become so closely identified with one in particular that people have a hard time kind of extricating them from it, but truly. But they all kind of can dip into these many different styles. Uh but we're going to give a, we're going to talk about specific examples a little later and William de Kooning is a good example of this kind of figural abstract yeah, figural yeah. expressionism Definitely. where you see what I mean you don't even need to read the title to see what it is, but it's very abstracted compared to what people would expect of a figural painting. And then um, we get into action painting, which is your, I mean, you got to go to Pollock for that just because people. He's your boy. He's your boy. There's so much action with his, his paintings, not only in the creation of them, but you can see that action displayed in the finished work. Mm -hmm. You can see the movement. Another word that's often used is gestural. Oh. Um, yeah, gestural painting. You sounded kind of sad about that. No, no, it's just because, like, oh. I, I, man, you know, it's because that's how I, that's what I've learned that yeah. it was called, was yeah. gestural painting. Yeah, it's a more informal painting style where it's not super planned out, and that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not some premeditation to it, so I think it'd be easy for a lot of people to look at a, I'm just going to keep using Pollock as, as an example, and say, oh, the guy just threw paint at a canvas mm-hmm. and, you know, that's bullshit or whatever. It's not quite that simple. There is premeditation involved. And there's planning. There's things like that. But so much of the finished product is tied up in this idea of uh, movement and spontaneity and kind of just going back to what Corey was saying earlier with uh, being kind of like primal and like letting mm-hmm. your unconscious take over. The subconscious has like a role in what you're doing automatism automatism that's the that's also the technique the surrealist used it's kind of just <laughs> like they autopilot. Would, yeah <laughs> they would sketch yeah very much on autopilot it's just going for it basically yeah. and yeah. it was a technique used by both the surrealist and the abstract expressions and yes. expressionists so there's a it's just a very physical type of painting um and you're really bonding like emotion and action and movement just all together in this style and I liked this description that the outcome of action painting is kind of like a residue. So it's like the residue of the expression. The yeah. Like, yeah. And, and I mean, you could kind of use that for any painting, but mm-hmm. it sounds a little more fitting to use it with something that is so spontaneous and kind of explosive in nature. And then last but not least, our color field painting. So this is, like we said, our Rothko's large expanses of color. And Rothko in particular is interesting because he always maintained that he was not an abstract painter and a lot of his work can kind of be said to not be super expressionistic his color field paintings in particular because it's hard to kind of look at them and get an expression necessarily um you can't deny that there's emotion and that there are things to be expressed but it doesn't quite fit into expressionism as a defined term well in a lot of ways he was painting actual like states of existence and like mm-hmm. spiritual states. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that's where he was making the argument that he wasn't an abstract painter yeah. because he was painting he was painting a state of existence that by its very nature is abstract. He was cheating the system. He yeah. Was like, right, you are not gonna put me in a box. I will <laughs> So he wasn't you. he wasn't abstracting anything real. Mm-hmm. He was instead painting something that was already abstract. So 
Kind of a baller move on his part. All right. <laughs> we, we see you. We see you, Rothko. I'm still really holding on to that moment when it was like the which artist do you relate to from your zodiac sign? Mm. And Rothko was the Capricorn one. And I was like, yes. Yep, because you're not the only Capricorn I know that has been very enchanted by Rothko. What? Yeah. I never saw that. What, what yeah, was yours that? was... Oh, did I see that? I sent it to you. I think... What was yours? I don't know. A while ago. This was like a year ago. Yours was Rosco. I want to say Ginny's was O'Keefe. Okay. I think yours was Da Vinci. Yeah, yours was Leonardo Da Vinci. Really? Yeah. John looks conflicted. I know. I'm like, uh. He's like the ultimate master. Yeah, I'm not upset. It's just that whole. Just like that whole association of the Virgo as perfectionist, yeah. Right? yeah. So it's like obviously Da Vinci, yeah. yeah. But it's cool. It's cool. He's a master. <laughs> it's fine. It's like, it's like he was like interesting and different yeah. too, though. He wasn't just like a perfectionist in like a boring kind of way. He was like he was out there. Yeah, yeah. Back to Colorfield again. This was a New York heavy movement within abstract expressionism. I really don't have much else to say about Colorfield. I mean, I guess I should describe it. I feel like it's all so story. You know, like, some color. Yeah, if That's you haven't seen Rocco, you're probably that. super frustrated with me right now. You're like, what, what are you talking about? That's all I so have Colorfield to say So Colorfield paintings are basically <laughs> color heavy, so... I'm going to say that that Forrest Gump reference, though, is like... We can go way deeper with that because... Okay, so I'm going to do some analysis here. Forrest Gump, and that's all I have to say about that, is dealing with really intense, um, traumatic things he experienced in his life. And he that's all he has to say. Yeah. Like, he's and, done. And he's, he's just, like, explained all these things, and then he's caught in this moment of just being like, that's all I have to say about that. So it's, like, this very, I think primal moment of him understanding his intense experience yeah. and Roscoe's painting. So Roscoe are... finishes painting and steps back and goes, and that's, <laughs> that's all, all I have to say about that. Wow! Full circle! Wow. I love it. I love it. I we love it. should also make a shirt that has Forrest Gump looking at a Roscoe. <gasps> Or he's got on the bench, in the bench and he's like this, and he's looking at a Rothko. Oh my god! Are we gonna get sued if we make that? I don't think so. Is Robert Zemeckis gonna come after us? <laughs> we could do oh, well, we can do our own so drawing. We, I will draw for us. Yeah, cartoon version. Of yeah, as long as we don't yeah. take an actual image from the movie. All right, I'm writing that down. Forrest Gump looking at Rothko. That is we've got perfect. Merch, merch on the minds. Yeah, we do. Yeah, so those are the subcategories. Thank you for sticking with me. Nat, you did great. You need to Thanks, stop. Ben. You're fine. Thank you. You, you, know, gotta, you just got to breathe it in. <sighs> Abstract gotta... expressionism is hard. It's really hard to talk about this because it's so crazy. Art is hard, you guys. It is very hard. And abstract expressionism is something that people go ape shit over. Yeah. It's an ape shit bananas <laughs> movement. <laughs> art, art historians go writing that down. <laughs> that's no that's like that's like it's like a um uh acronym abstract expressionism ab x yeah ape shit bananas oh, <laughs> oh god my, that's the name of our Thank episode <laughs> ape, ape shit bananas expressionism oh, 
This is so good. Oh my god. Uh, well, it's true. It's true. Abstract expressionism is one of those um, labels. It's one of those things that even people who do not understand most of the art that they look at are not people who have had any kind of formal training in how to talk about art. People, the layman, can. <laughs> I swear you said that. The Laban <laughs> can um, pretty much tell when they're looking at an abstract expressionist work. Mm-hmm. And they, I think they'll often define it as just abstract, but right. like that's, yeah, it's yeah. very common. So this is a movement that became hugely popular, and it's an interesting one because it was hugely popular when it was contemporary. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there are many art historians who have wondered why. So in 1974, Ava Cockcroft wrote about abstract expressionism in Art Forum. She said that to understand why a particular art movement becomes successful under a given set of historical circumstances requires an examination of the specifics of patronage and the ideological needs of the powerful. And this is huge. This is huge when understanding this movement and why it became so wildly popular in the United States and then throughout the world. And I think it's interesting, too, because that definition makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about Renaissance art, when you're thinking about other, but you don't think that... Ab X would have been a movement that would work that way. Yeah. But in fact, you would be very wrong. Um, so in order to understand what happened and what the sort of breeding ground was for abstract expressionism, we need to look at the times. So we've already discussed that Ab X became a popular movement post-World War II. So understand for a minute what post-World War II USA was like. After the war, the U.S. won. We won because we dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan and terrified the rest of the world. So the USA has this grasp on world power. Europe is completely bankrupt, totally bombed, and at the mercy of the U.S. The U.S., had to essentially become buddy-buddy with the Soviet Union during World War II and then immediately became crazy paranoid. And so why was the U.S. such a paranoid place? Um, So this grasp on world power was very tenuous. The role of the USA as top dog was gained by this like unimaginable violence, like super viciousness, um, which is characterized by the nuclear bomb. Nothing like that had ever happened before. No one had ever seen destruction on such a mass scale in such a quick amount of time. Mm -hmm. They dropped a bomb and it decimated millions of people and an entire country. So the U.S. post-World War II, they're in power. They basically rule the world. They're swimming in dollars. The U.S. didn't really get involved in World War II until kind of late in the game. And we pretty much only had to worry about Pearl Harbor. And that's it. We didn't get bombed. We were fine for the most part, you know. There's a really good episode of, there's this documentary series on Netflix that's like, I can't remember the exact name of it, like the untold history of the United States, I want to say. And it's about how... 
Um, I mean, a lot of what goes on in the show is about this, but it's about how the United States kind of just came into World War II last minute and then pretended that we saved the world. Exactly. Like, that's essentially what we did. Yeah. When really, I'm not going to say we didn't have a role, but, like, we weren't what stopped the Nazis. No. There was a lot of other stuff going on there. Yeah. I I have heard an interesting thing about, like, a... I don't even know if it's a conspiracy theory, but a potential theory as to the U.S. or people knowing about Pearl Harbor before it mm. happened. That there were like, oh some... damn, but Bush did Pearl Harbor. Oh yeah. damn, no, so it wasn't there's quite Pearl Harbor that. truthers. Yeah, <laughs> supposedly there were people who were in inside that knew, and not many people, but there were few people that knew it was going to happen before it happened, and let it happen whoa interesting crazy yeah. it's just yeah. like an excuse to get into the war crazy pants all right that, and again yeah wow. we're, talk, we're getting off in tangent no 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 that's not even a tangent we should do uh we, we yeah. should do a art history babes hot takes episode on conspiracy Woo! theories oh um, nothing God. to do with art but i think we should do it i yeah. would love to do that <laughs> <laughs> go on um, all of our paranoid like <laughs> ideas no, about just the world. for funsies we should do yeah. a conspiracy theory episode. i used to think baking powder was a conspiracy okay <laughs> just throwing that out there i honestly will talk four hours about flat earthers like i have so much to say <laughs> about flat earthers yeah, I, know one. I, know one. I do too man i will i've got some i not only do i have things to say but i have questions so right. i would really like to I put that ask out there questions yeah so paranoia all right <laughs> so Going back to what we were talking about, um, the U.S. post-World War II is an extremely paranoid place. Why? Because they basically rule the world. And there is the pesky little detail of the Soviet Union that the U.S. quickly decided, um, actually, we don't want to be cool with you. (laughs) And we're going to bomb Dresden just to kind of like prove our point. Yeah. Um, so what arises in post-World War II is a, this, this very purposeful campaign to install an anti-communist culture, an anti-communist psychology in the United States. So right after World War II, we just dive into the Cold War. So what happens in a big part of the campaign to instill this anti-communist culture in the United States is the formation of the CIA. So the Central Intelligence Agency. And the CIA evolved from what used to be called the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. And way less official. Right. It's an office instead of a central intelligence agency. Come on. They stepped it up. Yeah. So um, the OSS had been the U.S.'s um, secret service organization during World War II. At the end of the war, the OSS, so that's us, was responsible for the recruitment of Nazi officials and SS officers, um, secretly shipping them off to South America where with OSS protection and new identities, they set to work to suppress indigenous communist insurrections. Crazy. Yeah. The OSS becomes the CIA, and the U.S. begins to funnel huge sums of money into the CIA's campaign to culturally fight communism. And this culminated 
in the Congress for Cultural Freedom in 1950, the CCF. Their general, the general idea was to parade art, so art meaning writing, visual arts, music, poetry, theater, what have you, to parade art that was、um, antithetical to Stalinist ideas about what art should be. So the art that was financed through the CCF was meant to represent freedom. And this idea of a pro-American freedom really was embodied as a freedom of the individual. This emphasis on every man for himself. So it was precisely the kind of art that was banned in the Soviet Union. So all kinds of events took place in 1952. The CCF sponsored a masterpieces festival. Of works that were prohibited under totalitarian regimes, so what would have been prohibited under Nazi Germany,、um, what was prohibited、um, in Soviet Russia, and the primary art that was on display was abstract expressionist. So, why did this happen? There's a quote from Alfred Barr, who at the time was the director of the MoMA. Barr says. The modern artist's nonconformity and love of freedom cannot be tolerated within a monolithic tyranny, and modern art is useless for the dictator's propaganda. So the CIA becomes heavily invested in this idea of culturally fighting all communist ideals, and so emphasis is put on the individual. Abstract expressionism becomes. Tied to this idea of the individual's expression of their mind, of their emotions, of their neuroses, what have you. So it's perfect for、um, this idea of culturally fighting communism. Jump back to the beginning of the episode when a lot of the abstract expressionists believed in Marxist ideology. I know. <laughs> so I'm going to get into that. So. The artistic situation in the 1930s sets up the precedent for abstract expressionism. Artists were like barely scraping by. Okay,、um, artists in the United States were living off of the federally sponsored WPA or the Works Progress Administration. This was a New Deal era agency that was installed to give millions of people jobs. This really was like a welfare state. That the U.S. had during the 1930s, and the point was to carry out public works projects. So this could be all kinds of things, but the WPA also employed artists. After a year of the WPA even being installed, there was something like 40,000 artists being employed by this government agency, and these were artists that were painting mainly murals. These artists were most often Marxist. They were involved in these very vocal and active artist groups, so、um, they were explicitly anti-fascist. Most of them, so groups like、um, the American Artists Congress, the Federation of Modern Painters and Sculptors, groups like the Popular Front movement, that was a European group, actually aligned with the American Artists Congress. So the Popular Front movement included the notorious Picasso. Who was very anti-fascist, and so all these groups presented a united front against the rise of fascism. 
But then World War II starts and um, quickly all the funding from the WPA is gone. Many of these artists who truly believed in communism and Marxist ideals were actually left feeling very bitter and cynical about just political solutions in general. These artists, their target audience, turned from trying to influence the masses to trying to sell their work to the elite. At the end of the day, artists got to eat. And um, so really, this is when abstract expressionism starts to take hold. Um, Artists like Adolf Gottlieb and our boy Mark Rothko really went on to become superstars. And um, they also were involved in a group. They led a group called the Federation of Modern Painters and Sculptors. And this group was fervently anti-communist, which was kind of a new thing among these artists. This is all happening around the end of the world, uh, war, the end of the world, (laughs) that's the end of the world, Um, (laughs) these artists that were, they felt betrayed by the Soviet Union, and they decided to look instead towards um, Trotskyism. Ah, Trotsky. Trotsky. Our boy Trotsky. Trotskyism upheld the belief that art in and of itself was subversive and that it should be left free to develop on its own without political restrictions. And so this kind of instilled a new ethos among these artists, which really championed the individual as king. So context, all of this was happening in America during a time when around the world, communist parties, communist artists really were, they upheld their political commitments and they were committed to realist art. The French Communist Party declared realism the only true answer to the fake prophets of skepticism, anguish, and despair. In Mexico, we have Diego Rivera, Jose Clemente Orozco, and David Alfaro Siqueiros. So these were the three big muralists that were super world famous at the time. And these artists were making their making a name for themselves by painting enormous murals with that were realist and were spreading this anti-American imperialist message. Also, they were all staunch communists. So this idea of like anti-communism becomes like a way for the U.S. to be like, uh, we're different. Mm-hmm. We're not like the rest of the world. And the abstract expressionists become this like perfect sort of um, cultural face to this new commitment to freedom and individualism. It becomes an ideologically useful movement to fund. And so this group of abstract expressionists were mostly men. They were presented as this ultimate antithesis to communism. So they're individualistic, autonomous. Um, Their work really exudes this like despair and anxiety of the world, the fear of atomic annihilation. Jackson Pollock really became this like icon of alienation. He Um, also was just like, he was a a man's man. He was a man's man. He was very like all American man. Yeah. Put my cigarette in this painting. Yeah. 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 I wear denim jeans. Yeah. (laughs) 
he was actually on the pages of Life magazine. Mm-hmm. That's that a, is not an art magazine. That's a really way. cool spread, though. The, yeah. Those photographs are really good. So mm-hmm. funny, the um, Life magazine at the time was owned by one Henry Luce, a prominent force in Cold War State Department machinations. So Rolls off the tongue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so Pollock becomes this like metaphorical commodity. He really becomes this sort of pawn of U.S. like psychological warfare when it comes to trying to sell the rest of the world on this hardcore individualistic art movement. It's funny that abstract expressionism was so favored by the CIA and these upper level officials that are into this idea of a cultural warfare against communism. Because Truly, the abstract expressionists were just, like, really pessimistic, yeah. sort of, oh, like, yeah. just nihilist yeah. dudes. Like, they were just like, ugh, like, what's the point? Like A lot um, of them committed suicide. Yeah. But it's like they, they would easily pick nihilism over communism. That's really Truly. Really, um, yeah, like the... To, what was it? Socialist realism? Yeah. Social, yeah. So, Socialist but, realism. Oh, man, I'm excited for that episode. Yeah, we're going to do that. that interesting one. style. <laughs> These artists really felt that they had to present a pessimistic and somber view of the world. They refused to paint reality or just viscera for the most part. Doing so would be considered like frivolous or superfluous, hollow, um, ostentatious yeah yeah <laughs> settle down too many good words <laughs> so this there was a general idea that nothing should be finished or refined um nothing should ever be inauthentic and so therefore they really favored crudeness and this idea of destruction was really considered like the only reaction left to a post-nuclear world not only was the cia funding the ccf A lot of acronyms in this episode. Nelson Rockefeller, who owned and operated the MoMA at the time, uh, purchased over 2,500 pieces of abstract expressionist art. Hot damn. Yeah. He, He set up these huge and enormously expensive exhibitions of abstract expressionist artworks and also exported them to museums throughout the Western Bloc. So these exhibitions in particular were pushed on France because this idea that Paris is still the art capital of Mm -hmm. the world. And so having American abstract expressionist art in Paris is proving that American supremacy exists in the art world. So just by sheer size and volume of work, Americans are reigning supreme in every aspect. It's a lot like was in the 70s when... That California wine won best wine in France. Oh my France. god, yeah. We just visited that winery. Yeah. Uh, Fremark Abbey. Was it? No. I, I thought, thought it was. Chateau something else. Oh, maybe it wasn't. But Fremark Abbey, the the Judgment of Paris. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. But they they had the 100% cab. I think it's Fremark. I mean, they had all the stuff up. So maybe that's not the one that's famous for it. There's but. the movie about it, Bottle Shop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it pretty good. We pulled it up um, but yeah, it's just, I mean, it's 
it's funny because there are a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities between art and wine, like the wine market and the art market. It's mm-hmm. all it, bougie. We should really do an episode about that too. But anyways, it's just <laughs> I think it's very interesting this idea of like Paris and France set what is cultural and then America's like we're gonna be on the like, we're taking over their Paris. Paris. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but we still need their yeah, approval. Exactly. Yeah, we can't beat exactly. them on our terms. We have to make sure that they admit that we beat it. We we beated them. Wow. <laughs> we that was beat bad. Them. I should have said that in my best American accent. <laughs> we beat them in Paris. <laughs> we beat them good. Freedom prize. <laughs> Freedom fries. Oh man. Anyway. (laughs) So, um, interestingly, it's interesting. Did I say that it was interesting (laughs) to note that this exporting of American cultural products, commodities, if you will, which are really, it's really what abstract expressionist work turns into is a American commodity that among other American commodities can be wrapped up in the Marshall Plan. That was a post-World War II plan to essentially provide these bankrupt and decimated European countries with some kind of rebuilding reparations plan. But what really, what, what it really was, was America is filthy rich. The rest of the world got bombed to shit. So please take all of our products. We'll just sell you all of our products and we're going to get super wealthy and you're just going to buy all of our shit, including our art. Uh, there was an exhibit in Barcelona that featured abstract expressionist paintings that were so large that the museum's metal doors had to be sawed off in order to get the paintings through. <laughs> There's an interesting quote in a publication from Belgium, La Libre Belgique. The headline is, The Biggest in the World. This strength, displayed in the frenzy of a total freedom, Seems a really dangerous tide. Our own abstract painters seem pygmies before the disturbing power of these unchained giants. I can't think of a better way to exemplify what the U.S. wants to be in the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. It's um, important to keep in mind that abstract expressionism may have never become a movement much less a highly successful and popular movement had it not been for deliberate efforts among the CIA to instill a psychological and cultural warfare against anti or against communism the cold war interesting time in US politics interesting time in our American culture and really sums up what was going on in the world from the end of World War II up until, I don't know, now, yeah. like 1989 <laughs> supposedly, but still, we're still like, yeah. like terrified that we're going to get bombed by North Korea or we're going to blow ourselves up or Russia's going to blow us yeah. up. I don't think the Cold War is over. Yeah, that kind of fear doesn't just go away. Not to mention just our general societal, like, disdain for communism. 
growing up as a kid in the 90s, I just was like, oh, yeah, we hate communism. I had no idea what the fuck communism was. <laughs> I'm yeah, re-watching exactly. that 70s show. <laughs> it's the Which communist. is the perfect example of how the 90s culminated in people just, like, making jokes about hating communism. Yeah. Like, oh Red Foreman's character is all about the epitome of hating everything communist. It's just, like, it's like a stereotype, pretty much. Like, I didn't know anything about history or what communism was, but I knew it was bad. It was bad and red. Yeah. It was bad and red. And this is really the product of a very carefully articulated and carried out plan to demonize communism in our cultural psyche. Yeah. That's why even little kids just know that communism is bad. And it reminds me, this is very timely because we just had the anniversary of Mm 9-11 and I remember when 9-11 happened, I was in the seventh grade, and I remember coming to school and hearing kids say, it was the Russians, it was the Russians, it was the communists. And me me being like, wow, really? Like, what? And I didn't know anything. I was 12. But these kids that don't know what the hell they're talking about, like, saying it was the Russians. Um, So this is still something that... I don't know if it'll ever go away. I think we're always going to be a paranoid nation and generations are going to just multiply. Yeah. (laughs) They don't get replaced. I mean, I don't know. Like now the Russians are, have infiltrated our government. So like we're in like a whole new situation now. It's a new cold war. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so getting crazy. hot. It's, it's a, a, it's a <laughs> hot war. <laughs> it's an icy hot war. Oh man! <laughs> so just really quickly before we wrap this episode up, um, we're just gonna look at a couple of abstract expressionist works. Let's see. Let's start with Willem de Kooning's Woman Number One. So Woman One. Uh, 1950 to 1952. This is a very quintessential abstract expressionist work. I think a it's figurative abstract expressionist. Yeah, work. that's true. If in your modern your modern survey text, like this, is probably going to be on the first page of abstract expressionism. Yeah, it's yeah. Just it was a really big deal. Yeah, um, it is still a big deal. I is. saw this work in person. There's something very violent uh-huh. about this piece and I really enjoy that it is that way I mean it kind of sums up how I feel about abstract expressionism I think there's an inherent violence to a lot of the work and I think that de Kooning's woman series really kind of exudes that yeah it's definitely violent is a good word it's also dynamic and like I guess fast paced if that yeah. works like yeah. it's like there's a, a lot, lot. Of, like, shifty lines yeah so. so kind of going back to this idea of how abstract expressionism was concerned with process mm-hmm. you're looking a lot at the process of creating this painting when you look at this painting lots of different color lots of experimentation with line lots of movement in different directions Yeah, um, interestingly, de Kooning painted the Woman series after he met his future wife. And many have kind (laughs) of... um, kind of made this uh, claim that he really instilled uh, within his uh, women in this series this kind of his own, like, anxieties and, and, like, fears about 
I don't know Women. that I'd go through with the engagement <laughs> if my fiance painted me like this. I know. Or like, like my angry eyes. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that just like crazy, that crazy like, smile thing. Yeah. Like the teeth. Look at her feet. It's like a claw. It's yeah. kind of, she looks like Ishtar. Like she's like. Yeah, it's definitely, I think it'd be really hard to look at this and think, oh, what an endearing depiction. Yeah, yeah. he has a great viewing women yeah there's, there's yeah something aggressive about it like and it's hard to pinpoint exactly i don't know what kind of stands out to me especially is like there's just something so intentionally unfeminine about like the neck to shoulders region where it's like there's no neck there's <laughs> no neck like her traps are huge she's like, got a boxy set yeah of- breasts <laughs> they could be pecs like they're hard to I really distinguish those they seem like they would be hard yeah yeah, yeah. i just can't stop looking at that claw foot it's <laughs> yeah i'm like what no, there's definitely here? something kind of demonic yeah. and like yeah. we were talking about goya earlier there's something goya oh yeah yeah this is like monstrous oh and like the satyr feet kind of that's the oh, claw yeah foot. it kind of has that like Oof. Yeah, like woman as animalistic yeah. and uncontrollable. And mm. terrifying. Ah! Ah! The monstrous feminine. <laughs> the monstrous feminine. Um, one of my favorites, Sir Rothko's number 210 slash number 211. This happens a lot with Rothko's. So he did a lot of like number paintings mm-hmm. and a lot of times like we don't, like, it'll be, like, number 14, number 15. Like, they have, like, two numbers. We don't really, like, know right. what the extra number is. Do you like. think it's because there's two colors you So he could have had, like, two Maybe. colors for the two, may, like, main color box. Mayhaps. May, yeah, I don't may, know. Mayhaps. It's possible. It is a theory. Anything's possible. <laughs> so I, I actually was thinking about this when you were just talking about Abex and it being, like, inherently violent. I agree with a lot of work. I don't find anything violent about Rothko's work. I find a heaviness about his work. There's a heaviness, but what we mentioned earlier in the episode, this idea that Rothko was kind of chasing this uh, really nebulous, almost like a spirituality yes. through his work, and that really comes through when you're looking at a Rothko. We're looking at this work right now on Google Images, but... If you've never seen a Rothko in person, you have to see a Rothko in person. You cannot ever appreciate a Rothko if you're looking at it on a computer. Yeah. I almost made my background on my phone a Rothko, and I was like, this is stupid. Because yeah, like, it's just not the No, it's, just it's not like, cool, thing. I have an orange background on my phone. Like, yeah. It just doesn't, <laughs> it just, yeah. It just doesn't work. But... Looking at them on the internet is a lot more interesting when you've seen that some of them yeah. in person because you can kind of fill in those blanks. But if you haven't seen one in person, it, you just... Yeah, and especially so Rothko really embodies the color field aspect of abstract expressionism. And you cannot get that effect on the internet. Just right now, I'm seeing four different images that are four different colors mm-hmm. yeah and they're all the same painting mm-hmm. yeah yeah i like these images because i yeah. think they are the closest to Con, the real one Khan yeah. academy has a very high resolution good quality image of um rothko's number 210 to 11 so 
that is probably this is probably the best image we're gonna get. Yeah, and that's I mean that's a danger with looking at art on Google yeah. at all. It happens all the time. You're gonna see any painting you look up. You're gonna see right. so many different well, resolutions. Color is kind of only like the tip of the iceberg as far as like what you're missing out on. Like it's the yeah, size, the, the size, the texture, the, yeah. the way that light hits. The canvas, like all of these things are super important to these paintings and like feeling the full effect of the painting. Yeah, so Rothko Rothko's work, in my opinion, in my personal experience, and is kind of a common feeling. It's very meditative. Mm-hmm. I definitely think it carries with it a spiritual feeling and a spiritual connotation. And it does kind of transport you into this like meditative state. If you're willing to let it, you have to be open to it. I'm kind of upset the San Francisco MoMA really upped their game. It's a great museum. I just don't like what they did with the Rothko. It just kind of, it's, it's not the same. Like the room before was just perfect. Like you would sit and you gotta have look. a bench in front of a Roscoe. Yeah, I mean there is a bench. It's just I don't know. The room's just different, and it's just not the same. And I miss the old SF MoMA. If anyone working at the SF <laughs> MoMA is hearing this right now, and you know, fix that because I don't like it. Because <laughs> Jen doesn't like it. <laughs> You're not getting, I'm not getting um, the same feeling. You know what I always think of, which is so. This is not like don't quote me on this ever this is purely my interpretation but I always think of uh Friedrich when I'm mm-hmm. looking at oh Rothko's. yeah me too yeah 100% like that's so they really remind me of one another and I love so we'll put the picture that we're looking at from Khan Academy right now but it's a woman looking at a Rothko and it to me it's like the modern day like monk by the sea or like yeah. those paintings <laughs> of like Someone, like, contemplating out on nature, but it's, like, now we've evolved to people in museums, like, contemplating on these Rothkos. But it's such a similar, like, hazy kind of... Dude, that was, like, exactly, like, the question I was leading into. Because, one, I totally agree, because I have been kind of obsessed with Monk by the Sea for years and years, and it's it's the same thing. Roscoe just took out the monk and yeah. and the shore and because that's that's essentially what Casper David Friedrich was doing is he was playing with atmosphere and color to create this overwhelming feeling right, right. I was just gonna bring up do you consider like Roscoe's to be the expression of romanticism in abstract expressionism oh wow that's a really good question I think that in my moments where I've had really emotional reactions to artworks, Rothko has always elicited this sublime reaction. Definitely. Um, almost like looking at a Turner. This mm-hmm. like overwhelming sort of scene of like, it's chaotic and there's the storm is coming in and I get the same feeling when I stand in front of a Rothko. Mm -hmm. Um, This, like, wall of pure color. If you get close enough, you're engulfed in it. And it is a overwhelming, but, like, in a sublime way. Yeah. It's It's like an abstraction of that experience Mm -hmm. that was being portrayed by the romanticists, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and seeing these pictures of people standing in front of it kind of just, like 
closes the circle on the whole thing. Like, it just brings it all together, and you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. You're right where you belong. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I know. Oh, I love great. him so much. Man, thanks, Rothko. Yeah, seriously, thanks, yeah, dude. Call me. You uh, did some good-ass work. And last but certainly not least... Our girl, Helen. Yeah, we, Helen. Got, we got a lady. I like that we're leaving it off on, on Helen because the world of AbX is, by and large, and frustratingly, a boys, mm-hmm. boys club. Boys club. Especially frustrating following Impressionism, which was like... Also a boys club. No, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, there but was women were, yeah, 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 yeah. Women, like recognition wise women are not given the credit that they're due but within the movement they were respected equally yeah so historically we didn't quite get it right but at the time the artists had they had it figured out but anyway so we're staying in theme with orange (laughs) and we chose a burnt orange roof do you guys say roof or roof roof i say roof okay cool we're all on the same page orange roof roof yeah of 1961 it's oil on board Oh, just you. Just general just board. board. <laughs> <laughs> just your typical board. <laughs> so, Helen Frankenthaler. Frankenthaler? Frankenthaler. Frankenthaler. I took this crazy test the other day. It was suppo- it was one of those dumb clickbait articles that was supposed to tell me what color my eyes were based on, like, what I noticed first in, like, an image. It was wrong. <laughs> it said that I had green eyes, which I wish, but I noticed that my eyes are always drawn to like the orange so, something about orange is the first thing that i see well, definitely in this painting and in this painting yeah. like i'm definitely i'm catching the orange first yeah it looks kind of like a face Oh. A little, I kind of saw that. It's kind of Trumpy. Oh, I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's crazy. Oh, and the no. mouth and the eyes. I'm taking a picture oh. of this right now. It looks like a googly-eyed Trump. This is kind of a frog. This that's is so like, weird. I wasn't expecting Trump, but the longer I looked at <laughs> yeah. it, the more I didn't you definitely until you there. said hair. And as soon as you said hair, it just like clicked in. When you're not Froggy expecting Trump. Trump. Whoa. Oh. When there he is. <laughs> Damn it. Like, um, in the White House. <laughs> there he is. Um, what I was going to say is I love the color palette a lot. Mm-hmm. If you, like, you've been to my place, like, I... Oh, yeah. The, the, this, like, blue and yeah. then the reds and then I really like yellows, too. This like, is your palette. Yeah, this is your definitely palette. one of them, yeah. When you wear <laughs> that yellow kind of crochet sweater, like that mustard, mm-hmm. and then, like, a red shirt... And then you're like... And then jeans, yeah. Or, or you got like a red shirt and you got those like green overalls on. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, damn. <laughs> damn. I just, I like these tones and I like these colors a yeah. lot. Yeah, these and tones I would, go together very I would, well. I mean, what would you guys say? I would say this falls a little bit more into like figural expressionism. <laughs> I think trying? it definitely does, but now I can't stop I, seeing it. I know. Frog <laughs> Trump is just staring at me. But it is unsee Trump. God. It's definitely well, not color field or... I think um, it plays with elements of color field, but yes, I do think it's Yeah, I think you're right. You're, you're right. Because of the colors are so blocky and so kind of segregated yeah. in yeah. the canvas that it is... It or, is, sorry, the it board. is housey, burnt orange roof. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's, it's working off of some kind of a house or... <laughs> I'm really upset that I can't not yeah. see Trump. Yeah. This sucks. I'm sorry, Helen Frankenthal. Yeah, like, such a bummer. I didn't mean for this to happen. 
happened. <laughs> you hijacked your beautiful oh, painting. God, now everyone's going to be but like... But now I'm kind of scrolling and I see a lot of faces in her painting. Yeah, there's okay. going to be memes about this now. You just like, wait and see. Just see like, we should just post it. We'll make we'll make our own meme. Yeah. yeah. When you want to forget about Trump at the gallery, <laughs> but then... Yeah, we should make that. I'm going to make that. I'll make that right now. Uh, oh, man. It's fucking everywhere. Anyway. Yeah. We'll we'll do a, a a Helen Frankenthaler episode. All of our moods just drop. That, you know, we're all like, oh. Yeah, that is better than um yeah ending on than Trump. That. Yeah, that's that's a shitty place to end. But oh, um, we didn't know. We didn't know. How could we have known? I know. How could any of us have known? <laughs> Surprise! Trump is the worst. <laughs> I watched a great little like clip of an interview today where Anderson Cooper asked Hillary Clinton if she absolved people from not voting, and she was like, "No." Good. <laughs> yeah. And obviously, she said a lot more than that, but it was really funny. Why would he even like, ask her that? That's an asinine question. What Probably to give her the platform to then explain why she does it. I, yeah, I, knowing Anderson yeah. Cooper, okay. I think he had okay. the force yeah. to be like. Anderson Cooper is probably <laughs> trying to get a very specific answer. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. People say my dad looks like Anderson Cooper. Your dad does oh, look shit. like Anderson Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> He's like full white hair. He does. Sorry, oh. dad. I'm, He's about it's to just be true. It's the white, white. hair. What? No, he <laughs> knows. He, we joke about it all the time, but I just didn't want to call him out for his snowy white hair. Next <laughs> time I see your dad, I'm going to be like, hey, Coop. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anderson. What's up, Coop? Let's do a quick listener mail. We have a lot of listener mail. So, unfortunately, some really good ones have ended up in the backlogs for literally no reason. It just kind of happens because we picked these kind of at random. Yeah. Um, so, pulled it out. It's a message from Kylie. Hi, y'all. To start off, I love your podcast and find your commentary and information incredibly insightful. I just listened to your Gorilla Girls episode and got super stoked when you mentioned Utah, since that's my home base. Oh, shit. Utah! It made me doubly excited because I actually interned at the Utah Museum of Fine Arts, which recently underwent a massive remodeling project, and I just got to go on a sneak peek tour of the galleries before they officially opened in August, so... That, They're open. Yeah. So it's open. That happened. Um, I've been there before, though. Utah Museum of Fine Arts is dope. I it, heard that was a really dope museum. It is. It's a really... It's. I mean, it's not... It's not really big, but I actually think it's a really great size. Like, it's just big enough for, like, a afternoon, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a good museum. That's nice sometimes. Overwhelming museums. Yeah. 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 Always off. Yeah. I yeah. No, I... That's how I felt at the Met. Oh right! Oh holy hell! Oh yeah, move. I saw. I, I saw. Like, take a nap. Like one one hundredth of the Met, I think. Anyways, as my sweet sweet supervisor swore me to secrecy, I can't specifically say why our revamped contemporary art gallery would make the Gorilla Girls super super excited, but I can strongly hint that there's a reason why my social justice oriented museum's revamped contemporary art gallery would make the Gorilla Girls super excited. <laughs> All right, I love it. I know that's, that's so cute. I know that's kind of vague, but it was just too. It was just cool to make a connection with your podcast and a museum that's very near and dear to my heart. Side note. The UMFA actually does community meetups at the Spiral Jetty. Oh, I love what? the Spiral Jetty so That's much. That's awesome. It is like one of my favorite places on the planet. And the sun tunnels every few months. And you can hitch a ride out to them if you ever come back to Utah during one of those meetups. So I know that's not much of a reason to travel out to the state. No, it totally is, yeah, though. Spiral Jetty is so, so cool dope. To know. It's like and a, we have to visit it with well, you. And it's, it's not like you would just go out there and just look at Spiral Jetty. There's a ton of stuff. 
stuff. To oh yeah, do out Utah there. is. Oh, we would tourist so cool. the shit yeah. out of Utah. <laughs> no, I've heard that Utah is like a Kylie, sleeper don't sell your state tourist uh, destination. No, Utah is fucking dope as shit. I know in the past, you know, five, six years or whatever, like Colorado has been the hot spot. Skip Colorado. Yeah. I mean, I, I do really want to go to I mean, go to Colorado, Rock, but then go to Utah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Colorado's great. Like, I'm not trying to diss on Colorado. I love Colorado too. It's but, but it's just become this thing like moving to Denver, moving to Colorado. I would move to Utah over Colorado any day. It's a really cool state. Mm-hmm. There is. Yeah. A lot of interesting You're not things. the first person to say that. I've heard a few people be like, yo, Utah is the place. It's lit, man. It's cool. I miss it quite a bit. To finish off her message, also, you mentioned bra burning in this episode, which is something that never actually happened. Word. I'm sure people already wrote in to tell you about this, but it's just a bit of historical misinformation that drives me nuts when mentioned since it was invented by anti-feminists to discredit the second waivers protesting the sexism in Miss America pageants. And then there is a, an article. An article. And then thanks for the fun episodes. I did know that. I don't know the details, but I had heard that it was historical misinformation. Well, you know yeah. what? I have burned one of my bras and I just know that people have burned bras. But I but not because totally, she's an anti-feminist. Right, no, no, no. I'm a, I'm a total feminist. I mean, I still wear a bra because I don't want to hurt anybody. But I, I, yeah, I don't know. I was like 14 and I thought I was radical. And I think with like Riot Girl and Punk and, every, and everything after that, bra burning became a thing because of yeah. this falsified information yeah. that bra burning was a thing. I want to read that article. That's yeah. cool. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's basically in the 1960s, radical feminists didn't actually right. burn bras and Bras mass. are expensive. Yeah. yeah. All right. I just spent $45 on I a bra. Know, right? I'm not going to burn it. I don't, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm one of those lucky folk who don't really need one. <laughs> lucky me. But, um, but I I think a lot of times bras are just helpful and comfortable, right? Like it's not. I'm wearing like a no underwire. Yeah, the no say, underwire yeah. right now, and this is like so comfortable. Yeah, I was gonna say they're not always yeah. like uncomfortable, and but it it's just, like sometimes like, they make it more it comfortable. It just keeps things where I want them. Yeah. But anyway, we but digress. Choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean I rock the no underwire sometimes. I've as you know though kind of shifted away from. Yeah. From bra life fairly often. I'm and, actually surprised that you're wearing a bra tonight. <laughs> um, it's well, it's because I worked all day and it was with like middle aged people, yeah. so I was like, eh, no. yeah, yeah. Um, better blend. Um, I didn't know that it was a ploy among anti feminists to somehow ridicule the feminist movement. Yeah, that's yeah. I want to read that article. That's really. That's really interesting yeah. information. And now I'm also wondering how many bras were burnt because of that myth. Ah. You know what I mean? Like as a... Maybe it's in the article. Like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like it put into yeah. Yeah. motion. All I know is bra the only bras that I'm about to burn are my old shitty ones that don't fit anymore with the underwire coming out the oh, side. Oh, that's stabbing. the worst. Oh. It stabs <laughs> oh. That's and they put that little feeling. stupid rubber cap over it. Like, like that's going to make gonna it feel better. you break. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, so it won't break skin. It'll just pierce into It'll my just ribs. Stab me. <laughs> anyway. Oh, <laughs> what an episode. Yeah. Decoding 
the craziness of abstract expressionism. The ape shit bananas. The ape shit bananas that is abstract expressionism. (laughs) Had a good time too. We talked about a lot of stuff. Um, So if you have any questions or thoughts, please email us at arthistoryvapes.com. Check out our Patreon for special bonus episodes. Bonus episodes. Patreon.com slash arthistorybabes. Hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Rice Review on iTunes. Um, All of those things make us love you even more than we already do. Bye. We'll see you soon. That crisp evening mm. fall air makes me want to run naked into the woods oh, yeah. and like have a, a witch's sabbath yeah.